Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Jay Lombazia, Global AI and Data Science Business Development Lead at Dell Technologies. With a background in the United States intelligence community, Jay specializes in AI, data science, analytics, and data management. Matt and Jay discuss why we should care about the edge, the complexities of deciding where to treat data and the last mile problem. They also talk about the benefits of data lake houses and the current debate around the dangers of AI. Before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so that you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting DellTechnologies.com slash Simplify Your Edge for more information or click on the link in the show notes. Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe and it will improve performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org, where you can download the original Open Grid manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Jay Lombazia, Global AI and Data Science Business Development Lead at Dell Technologies. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Good. I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm great. I wanted to go way back. How'd you even get involved in technology? What was the spark? So I'll give you a little background. My parents specifically are the reason why I got involved in technology. My parents are immigrants. They came to the United States way back when. My dad, Carson Lombazia, he was a civil engineer and he grew up with nothing. We were fairly, you know, weren't doing very well when we came to the United States. And the way he sparked my interest was that he had to build his name up again from the ground up coming to a new country. And and the way he would spark my interest is he would bring home these old computers from his work that they were going to throw away. And I remember being in like fifth grade, you know, with these old IBM towers that were like barely turning on with green screens and you know, just being fascinated, like, wow, like, what is this? What is this floppy, massive disk with holes in it that I got to put in? And that's what's going to run my program that, you know, whatever. This is like mid 80s. Yeah, like the mid 80s, mid 90s. I remember taking it all apart, individually taking out each bolt, each screw, you know, and bagging them up. And then as the years went on, I remember him saying, well, that's only half the fun. The other half you haven't even tried it, which is putting it all back together. Mm-hmm. that's where I think I sparked my interest. You know, for me, technology wasn't like others, right? It wasn't at my fingertips. My parents didn't have internet in the house till, you know, high-speed internet wasn't a thing in our house right. until I was in like 10th grade, mm-hmm. right? It was too expensive. It just wasn't something we needed. Yeah. And that's only because my sister went to college and she needed to write her applications to go mm-hmm. to school. So when I started going down this path of like technology and understanding, well, what fuels these computers? What's data? What am I getting out of this? And why is this even important? That's when I started getting connected to things like MySpace back in the day and understanding like there's multiple uses to technology, right? It's not just business use, which is what I was used to since my dad would bring home these computers from work. 
But now you can use it for networking, use it for school, you can use it for research and, you know, educating yourself. And that's really how I started is I didn't go to formal school at 14 to code. I did it on my own. And it was primarily because I was interested. What was the first language you programmed in? C. <laughs> that's pretty yeah, different. Was, yeah. I know universities start you off in Python and I, I was... I mean, I mean now, but... Yeah. C was the language. It was the yep. one that had the best compilers. And yeah, I mean, I get it. Yep. I get it. Yeah. So I still miss C. That was my whole story. <laughs> and things just kind of grew from there. It turned out that I didn't actually think you can make money from being interested in technology. But here I am to say that your hobbies can and your passions can actually be something you do for work. Yeah, that's cool. And as your careers developed, it sort of developed along some really interesting path lines and data and AI seem to have become. So tell me that evolution. How did that become your specialty? My career originally began in the intelligence community, right? The United States intelligence community. Oh, okay. And it was heavily focused around data. All things data is what fuels intelligence and the analytics behind that data is what helps us. Can you describe the work you were doing vaguely enough to not get you in trouble? I think a lot of the work was taking data and making sense of it so it could be used in operations. It could be everything from identifying subjects of interest to behavioral patterns to even something as simple as, I know we're going to get into edge here, but even something as simple as, can you identify a defect on an asset that could be being used in the field? And huh. can you identify it before that defect even happens? Right. So right. were you just, every so often somebody would show up with a project and a data set and say, we need to see if you can figure this thing out of this? Or what? <laughs> it was interesting because I had a lot of great mentors and originally it started off in really just these basic projects where, you know, if you remember when VMware came out, they had vCenter and the government had bought vCenter and they said, well, hey, is there a way that you could build a custom monitoring application that monitors your physical and virtual machines all in one platform. That was like a big, wow, you can monitor your virtual machines at the same time as your physical machines. This is amazing, right? Yeah. And that led to me kind of sticking my nose into places that probably I shouldn't have. And I'm glad I did because it opened up new projects, right? And yeah, it was, it was kind of like that. It was kind of like, hey, Jay, like, would you be interested in doing this project and this is the data set and this is what we know? And I was always like, yeah, why not? Yeah, you're the crazy one. Oh yeah, let's look at this one to Jay. Okay, so so you started the intelligence community, sort of cutting your teeth on data science and those things. And then what? Well, I was doing school at the same time. While I was doing school at the same time, I think my career grew in the intelligence community. I started learning a lot of stuff, not just data, but hardware itself. You know, I knew Dell before I even knew I could work for Dell. Building out racks was one of the things that I did, right? It's not the most fascinating of works, but it's something I learned. So I just kind of left my doors open to anything, mm -hmm. right? And I learned all different types of technologies. But when I came out of school, I was at a point where I was like, well, I want to try something different, right? I hadn't worked at a startup. So I wanted, you know, I had friends that are out West and they're showing me all these amazing right. nap pods. Stock options. They're, they're doing, and, right, stock right. options and unlimited food. And I was like, I want that. This yeah. is amazing. Why am I here, you know? And so I kind of transitioned to the corporate side of the house. I went to a kind of a consulting firm where I got my hands dirty with multiple different types of industries, right? Everything from healthcare to automotive, you name it. It was interesting because I'd only worked in the defense sector for so long. I was 18 when I started, essentially. Yeah. So it was interesting because I got to tackle completely new problems. But then again, that also, I want to say, made the rough edges get a lot smoother. When you're an engineer, you're essentially learning in a very black and white world. It's very math oriented. But there is a sense of creativity that is very important to innovation. And especially data science and AI, 
that I think you get from working in environments that make you uncomfortable. And so, you know, what I mean by that is like, I learned why it's so important for having a, a proper UX, the output of your application, you know, how to make it easier for customers and consumers to be able to make sense of what they're looking at and how different things affect that, right? Everything from color to positioning of data on a page. Those are things that most, I think most individuals don't think about, right? And they think, well, let's just slap this on a Power BI dashboard and voila, it's just going to magically influence business. There's a missing piece to that, which is how can you really help the end user understand what they're looking at, not just put data on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. So, so turning data into information or action or yeah, right. some, exactly. some change, changeable, yeah, yeah, some insight or something. Yeah, very, very true. Yep. What's your current position? What are you doing now? I'm a business development manager. I lead the global AI analytics and data management side of the house for our unstructured data solutions business here at Dell. It's been wonderful. It's been great. Great. So let's talk a little bit about Edge. I mentioned before we got on the interview that it's the middle of season three, and we haven't really talked about the definition of Edge in a long time. And I sort of want to go over some of that rudimentary stuff because I think my, my listeners will appreciate it. Why should I care about Edge? Let's start there. Why should I care about Edge? The primary reason you should care about Edge is because how far technology has evolved, that Edge is actually not only your consumer of data, but it's also your generation of data. And in this world, data is king, right? So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk right. about that. Okay, so so what does it mean to consume data and what does it mean to create data and why now at the edge? Well, I think as edge devices themselves have become more refined and I wouldn't say the connectivity and the security of them have, have been more refined now too. It's grown quite a bit. Now what's an um, edge device? I mean, it can be something as simple as a, a sensor, a vibration sensor. So, something, something that generates data. Right. Anything <laughs> out in the real world. Data. Out in the real right. world. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It can be a camera. I mean, you know, yeah. and why should we care is because those edge devices, everyone interacts with and they don't even know they're interacting with them. And it's extremely important to understand, you know, what data as a human living in a technology world are you interacting with? And how are you interacting with those edge devices, right? Sometimes, like I said, you don't even know you're inter interacting with an edge device. You know, let's just take the, the uh, ring camera on the door. Right. The ring camera on the door. Let's just take even traveling, right? You go to a city like London, where it has the largest number of cameras installed in the city. You don't even know that you're being watched. You don't even know that there's security measures in place, right? Yeah. But that's just how data is being used. That's how your data, personal data, when you interact with edge devices is being used. But now let's talk about the generation of it, Right. Every time an edge device is put out there, you're generating you know, mass amounts of data because that specific device doesn't just turn off as soon as you stop interacting with them. I mean, just take like vibration sensors on a wind turbine, for instance, right? It's consistently monitoring what's happening with that wind turbine and generating data based off of the sensors that are being used. This data itself is valuable data, right? You may say, well, Jay, there's no anomalies in that data, so why do we care about it? Well, the reason we care about it is because what makes edge devices function properly is the continuous reform of the algorithms that sit at the edge. And that can only happen with advanced analytics when you have to bring that large sums of data back to the core. That's where more of the hardcore, I want to say, analysis work gets done, right? The new algorithms that may be formed, the new innovations that happen, and that will only influence new edge experiences. Yeah. So, you know what I think is kind of interesting about the way you define that? You know, it's this place where data is increasingly being created and consumed. Right. And the idea that that's like 
a novel idea to us is actually it almost shouldn't be right because we live yeah. in the real world. Like that is where all the things are. So yep. why, that's where we are. What are the things are that it's actually almost a little crazier if I came to you and said, okay, right. Rather than like collecting and analyzing, do the data here. What am I going to do? I'm going to ship it to Seattle or Redmond yeah. or wherever. Yep. Right. And then if you wait long enough, it'll come back and it'll be useful. Right. right. Like that sounds absolutely nonsensical. And I know the reasons for that and the economies of scale and stuff, but I think very few people realize that the internet we have today was designed primarily to deliver content to humans. Yep. And so there's all kinds of things that, you know, speeds that humans operate, the bandwidth that humans operate, the amount of data we can consume at any given time, and the fact that we tend to consume more data than we create as individuals. Now, you're right, we have lots of sensors, they're all creating lots of data, but like, I can only type so fast, right? right. And so that's, that's really interesting. And so one of the ways that I've talked about it that seems aligned with the way you think about it is, Moving from a world where it was primarily machines talking to humans or humans talking to humans to a world where it's machines talking to machines. And yep. in that world, microseconds matter, nanoseconds yep. matter. So let's talk about, okay, so we got all these sensors. We're creating all this data. We have to analyze the data. How do we make decisions about where we want to analyze that data and how we want to treat that data? How should I think about that? I think every use case is different. Like you said, depending on what's happening with, you know, specifically that. Well, use let's, case. let's take the cameras in London. Let's just imagine, okay, I've got, yeah. I don't know, 500 cameras, 1,000 cameras. Yeah. And let's say some of them are even 4K, like high resolution, some maybe not. So how should I think about that? Where do I put that data? How do I analyze it? How do I collect it? Yes, what do I do? How do I think about it? So the way I think about it, right, is if you, even if you just take cameras, for instance, right? Yeah. Is what is the value of that data itself that you're collecting, that you're using actually? So when a camera, for instance, comes into focus, let's just, I'm going to assume this, you walk in front of a camera, the camera doesn't understand who you are because all the facial recognition models that have been trained, you know, there's a variability, of course, in that. And that variability is too high. So it says, hey, I don't know this person, right? I don't know Matt. I've never seen him. So there is value to collecting that specific data because it's never, it's never seen you, right? So because it's never seen you, it doesn't know how to classify you, mm -hmm. right? It could classify you better and more efficiently if it's able to make sense of who you are, right? And of course, that's valuable data, right? When you think about security, when you think about national intelligence, you know, you, those, those pieces of data, they matter. And so that's when you think about, okay, well, is it worth the cost to stream this data back to a centralized location? Right, or stream it back to a location that is off the edge. So you can not only retrain the model, but maybe do a little bit more you know, in-depth research about what you're seeing in terms of the data that's being collected, right? Now, there is things called the feedback loop, for instance, right? So where you may have an algorithm that falsely identifies a piece of information, like, like an image of you, for instance, and may say, well, no, that's not Matt, that's Jay. So you want to correct that. So it takes out the false nature of what's being trained on the algorithm. But there's also other things, right? I think it's not so much about, hey, can you take what's being produced at the edge and keep it at the edge? It's what more can you do with this data beyond the edge? You may not use it for identification of Matt, but you may be able to use it for something as simple as, well, how many individuals wear that specific shirt that Matt's wearing right now? Can I get an analysis of how popular that shirt is? in a specific area, and then be able to sell that information back to a retail organization. Maybe the, even the individuals that make that shirt itself, right? They may say, hey, we've seen 80% of males in London wearing that specific shirt. 
should we increase our advertising you know, budget for specifically the UK, right? Of course, we know they're not going to do this. This is hypothetical. They're going to use it for national security and making sure that there's behavioral analysis and things like that that go into it. But all those advanced deep learning models need a lot more compute power, right? And they need a lot more research, a lot more investment when it comes to advanced analytics. Yes, the edge can make sense of what's going on at the edge. But in order to make sense of something that's really beyond that, you really need more compute power, you need more storage. And really, you can use this data maybe 10 years down the road for something else, right? You can use it for a completely different type of use case you never even thought of. And that's why, you know, the data is so valuable, right? It's not so much the algorithm itself. It's can you capture this data and even save this data for maybe technology that hasn't even come out yet? So capturing the data of a thousand 4K cameras is like petabytes. Yeah. Probably is not something you actually could afford to ship back to the central location. Well, I think... Unless it's by train. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm not being serious. I think it's more the metadata than it's the actual physical Mm. image itself, right? It's not so much the actual physical image you're capturing. Of course, you can take metadata out of that and take only bits and pieces of data that you really, really need. Of course, there's things like, here's something I heard the other day with the Tesla cars, right? They only stream data back to their core location if the cars or the device itself experiences something that has never been experienced before. Hmm. Maybe a brand new road sign or a brand new stop sign or you know, a stoplight, for instance, or maybe a completely different type of sign it's never seen before. So maybe you have layers of storage. Right. So you've got maybe sort of the original video at the edge for five years. Yeah. And you send the metadata to the core. And if the core wants that frame, it can maybe mm-hmm. request it. And so there's this like you know, balance between them. Yeah, I can, I can see that making sense. It definitely doesn't make sense to me to completely say, hey, the data is too large at the edge, so we're just not going to consume it. Send anything, right. Right. That obviously doesn't make sense. I think yeah. there's an efficiency play here as well, yeah. right? And that efficiency play is obviously it costs money to store data, right? So let's make sure we store the right data. Right. Right. That makes sense. And also the transport. I think you mentioned it before, right? Some of these edge devices are located in areas that have almost no connectivity. I mean, 5G is great, but if you can't connect to it, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get that. So you're fond of talking about what you call the last mile problem. Can you describe what you mean by that? And can we go into that a little bit? Yeah, so the last mile problem specifically related to data science is when you take a, I like to call them a proof of technology, right? When you take an algorithm that's developed, that's a proof of technology based off of a use case. Let's just take predictive analytics, for instance, right? You develop an algorithm with a subset of data, that data trains this model, and you're able to get, you know, X as your output, right? Based off a backcast data that you already have. If we look at something like energy production, right? You can do a predictive analytics model on how much energy is going to be produced from a wind, you know, a single wind turbine. And can you backcast it to see if it's accurate? Well, that's taking a subset of data to build that model, right? The last mile is really taking your refined algorithm that says, okay, well, this has a accuracy of 40%, 50%, whatever. And actually understanding how can it be bridged into production, right? How can you actually take the algorithm, put it into a productionized environment? And take the output of what comes out of that and build it into your operations, your business operations. So it starts influencing decisions, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's efficiency gains or profitability. How can you actually start making decisions from your productionized model? Why is and, that hard? Well, it's hard because I think when you when you work in an R&D environment, everything before the productionization is all research and development, essentially. 
it's a controlled environment, right? You can control where your model sits, how it's trained. Essentially, you can control everything about it. But when you start opening it up to data that is a larger subset, real-time data, right? You have to now start thinking about, well, how am I going to collect that data? Where am I going to collect it? How am I going to clean it? How am I going to refine it to a point that is consumable by this specific model I've created? And by the way, how am I going to monitor the health of this model? Now, lastly, all this is great for a technology standpoint, but we still need to think from a business standpoint, from a use case standpoint, right? Then the business invests in AI, right? It's not the other way around. IT organizations aren't investing in themselves. It's the business itself saying, hey, I need to become more efficient. I need to deliver a better quality product because my competitors are delivering a better quality product. Or I need to generate more profitability because I need to reduce my O&M overhead. That's when you have to connect technology and business, right? Which is your financials. It's all great when you're doing it in your R&D environment, but bridging the gap between your R&D environment, getting into a productionized environment, getting the foundation layer proper and accurate so you can actually host this model and host this AI in your environment, but also making sure that the output makes sense to the business. A lot of times, the business may have a completely different thought of what they think is going to come out of their use case than what a data scientist produces. Or they may not even know what the boundaries are of AI itself, right? And that's where I think bridging that gap comes from, right? How can you make sure that whatever you're producing based off a use case can get into production in a timely manner, can be efficient, it can be maintained, and in the business itself, the users can make use of it? Okay, so you know I'm going to ask you the next question, which is, okay, how do you do that? I think the way you do that, you know, traditionally when I did projects for the government, it would be based off of a set of requirements. They'll say, hey, here's an RFP. These are my requirements. I want to make sure you answer these requirements, right? But it's different. I think the business has come a long way. When we first started talking, we said technology itself, right? When I started technology, it was a foreign concept. Internet was a foreign concept because my family couldn't even afford it. The business itself has gotten more and more educated as technology has become simpler, not the actual production of technology. I'm talking about the consumable part of the technology, right? So a cell phone, for instance, right? My, my, my mom is the least technical person in the world, but she can tell you how an iPhone works inside out, right? Right. And basically modern smartphones don't really crash. Not like, right. exactly. like all the right. Windows PCs, right? right. Like the, blue, the blue screen <laughs> of death was just like, you know, once a day. Yep. Yep. And so the way you bridge the gap, because our environment is getting smarter with technology, they have their own sense of what they want to do with it. And so you start from a use case perspective. Forget about the technology itself, right? There's a million different options out there. But if you start from the output, what are you trying to get to? What are you trying to do from a business standpoint, from a business value standpoint? Then you can work backwards and say, okay, this is the return on your investment you're looking for, right? You're looking to save X dollars or X amount of time, which equals dollars, right? Or you're trying to make X amount of money, right? Or a completely new revenue stream, for instance, right? And that efficiency gain is what you start with. And then you work backwards and say, okay, well, what is the process, right? What process have you actually adjusted or are you going to adjust? And what does that mean? What does that mean from a technology standpoint? What technology is already implemented? And then if nothing's been implemented, that's even better because you kind of get a white surface to start on. But most of the time, there's already something there. And then when you keep working backwards, keep working backwards, that's when you get to the core and say, okay, to address this problem, which is what ultimately you're trying to do, We don't need to boil the ocean. We need a smart way of not only gathering and collecting the right data, but we also need a smart way of being able to harness the data, clean that data, refine that data, and get it to a point where it can be consumable by technology X, whatever that technology X is, right? Right. And as you said, secure and reliable and all these other things. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And it also you point out that I think something technologists can often overlook that a successful implementation is as much a human problem, yep. person management problem as it is a technology problem. It's a person problem because I think there's two parts, right? I think the business things from the business side and technologists who are passionate about technology, rightfully so, love making it more and more complex. And right. they make it more and more complex because they're so interested in it, right? Right. It's super cool to work with a 4K camera, but maybe right. you don't need all those bits, right? Or <laughs> exactly. whatever. Yeah, I get exactly. it. I get it. Right. I get it. Yeah. So, okay. So let's do a little exercise. Let's just oversimplify, but let's go back to London. All right. So let's say, mm-hmm. okay, so we're running the city of London and we've got crime. We have terrorist threats. We have public safety issues, police support issues, fire, maybe all these things. So let's pick a use case. Let's do what you just said. Let's say we want to, I don't know, identify active shooters. Okay? Yep. So, so how would you think about that? So I think the way that I would think about it is obviously we're not going to get into every single data source that we, we, we sure, want to sure. identify. Right? I think there is a couple simple pieces of data you want to collect. Right. Obviously, there's behavioral traits. There's behavioral traits that you can make sense of from historical data, from historical behavioral traits of humans, right? Humans, you mean like someone's uh, moving a certain way with a certain gate. Right, exactly. Okay. Or maybe as simple as, you know, is there cameras located in a high secure area that are thermal cameras, right? Can you pick up weapons that are in someone's pocket, hmm. right? Can you understand, not only can you pick up weapons or can you pick up objects in someone's pocket or someone's being, but can you train an object detection model to specifically identify the pattern of what a weapon looks like, Okay. right? And then not only that, but can you make sure an alert goes out to the right people at the right space to say, hey, guess what? There's a person over there. Go get them <laughs> or go get her. So, so let's, let's imagine that we think we can develop an AI inferencing system that can detect, detect weapons. Okay? Right. And so now we've got to figure out how to collect all this data. So we need a network right? yeah. Yeah. And, and we need a bunch of cameras or whatever kind of sensors to do this. And we need to figure out a way to like if the cameras have software. We have to figure out how to update them. So there's all kinds of complexities there. And now let's just oversimplify them. Pull this data back, let's say to someplace reasonably central in the city. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, how do I decide what I do there versus what I do somewhere else? And what are the things, like you mentioned a term that I don't hear very often, which is data cleansing. How should I think about that in the context of data that's coming off of a camera and I want to, like, how should I, how should I think about data cleansing? So I think a lot of that, you know, a lot of the data engineering work, I would say, Mm -hmm. right, which includes collection of data, data, you know, identification of the right data, cleaning the data. I I honestly do feel that you can do a big portion of that at the edge. You can consume it, you can quickly clean it, you can quickly digest it and be able to make sense of it. Then there's data that, there's two parts to it. There's data that is valuable, maybe can be used in a completely different type of use case, right? I know we're talking about security here and, and specifically active shooters, but maybe you can use the data for, you Counting know, pedestrians, pedestrian, uh, right, whatever, sure, right? Sure. So that data itself, you know, you may not need the actual raw data itself. You may just need the metadata out of that to yeah. say, this is the data I want to I stream back to the core, right? A different location. But then there's, a, there's another portion of this, which is what's the value of the data that you're collecting? How can these pieces of data enhance the algorithm at the edge, right? Because even though you deploy something at the edge, in order to refine it for future trends, maybe four years down the road or three years down the road, you still need data to be able to kind of do that R&D work. Yeah, so let's disambiguate some of this stuff because you talk about doing things at the edge, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's not clear to me whether you mean like literally on the camera 
or five feet from the camera or someplace in the middle of the city or 10 places in the middle of the city or someplace 500 miles away or Mm 10,000 miles away. So when you talk about doing data analysis at the edge, separate from like R&D and furthering stuff, what are you talking about? Where is that happening and what are those kind of knobs that I would turn on that? Well, once again, it depends on the edge device, right? Let's take your phone, for instance. You can do a lot with your phone. But if you take something like cameras, for instance. Cameras, yeah. yeah, Cameras itself. Yeah, I definitely think with how small edge GPUs have become, for instance, I definitely think you can absolutely do most of that work on the camera itself, right? But the problem is, is that can you identify something that's going to take a longer period of time quickly enough, or maybe something that you're not able, not capable of doing at the edge because it requires more compute power or more, you know, more X, whatever that technology is, and stream it back to maybe something that's five feet away, right? And that five feet away will do kind of the... the yeah, I mean, maybe I have a street side cabinet every two blocks that has right. a rack of GPUs in it. That, yeah, you know, and exactly. I've got sub one millisecond latency and maybe that's enough when yeah. I'm detecting human right. shooter. So let's, let's say that I have that. Would you call that edge? I think I would call that edge. Okay. So I'm doing yeah. kind of infrastructure edge or the... Right. You'll have yeah. a thousand different names for it. But exactly. Yeah. There's the on-premises edge or on the on-device edge or the right. on-the-street pole edge. And then there's the like... There's support. like near edge and far edge, essentially. Yeah. Well, right. everybody... Like, <laughs> no, nobody, nobody agrees on whether near is nearer to the core or nearer to the... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's why I stopped asking. Define the edge because like everybody has a different <laughs> definition. Okay. And then I've got my research scientists, as you said, some maybe experimental workloads that take longer to do. Like I'm trying to improve the ability to see through... Mm-hmm. Weapons through clothing or something, right? You know, whatever right. the, yeah. the inferencing thing yeah. is. Okay. So this is one of the things that my listenership may not be entirely clear on. The language that I often hear is we will train the models on the core or somewhere else or in the R&D labs. And then we'll right. take those models and we'll push them down to the edge, whether mm-hmm. that means the device or the street side cabinet or something else. What are those two things? For people who who think they maybe understand, but maybe don't, why do I have these two things and why should I care? And what's the compute differences and why are they different? Well, when you train a model, it requires not only a tremendous amount of data, you need to have a lot more data when you train a model to get it to a point where you can refine it, refine it, refine it, and you get it to a point where, you know, the output is acceptable. The reason I say that is because there is no model in the world that is 100% accurate. There's always going to be a percentage of error. But are you comfortable with that percentage of error? Is really right. And do you have an escalation path to like correct right, exactly. the error? Or do you have yeah. feedback? Like I said, right? I think I mentioned right. the feedback loop. The feedback loop will, you know. Or even a human in the loop, right? Right. Or keep it right. Exactly. And so. Yeah. Like is it a gun? No, that's a broomstick. <laughs> right. And so when you train the model at a core location, it's more controlled. It's a controlled environment. It's kind of like a sandbox environment, right? Mm-hmm. Where you are building it out in an environment that. If it were to go down the path that you don't want it to go down, you can quickly bring it back and make sure it's not hurting anybody, essentially, right? But when you actually deploy at the edge, that's when things get real. That's when you're starting to take action with the output of that model. And that's why it's so important to have that core focus, that core R&D effort, I guess you can call it, right? Where you are consistently retraining and developing new models because a model can degrade, of course, right? It's not going to be perfect for years and years and years and years. If you don't monitor it, if you don't monitor the health of it, you don't monitor the output of it, or you don't, you, you don't make sure that there's new data that may be coming, you're adding new data that can refine that model that wasn't there previously, for instance. You're gonna have kind of stale outputs. It can become very dangerous. Technology is only as good as we make it. When you start deploying some of these models, we're talking about camera models right now, right? But when you start talking about autonomous driving, for instance, sure, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure your, your listeners know, you know, it can become extremely dangerous and life-threatening and cause severe harm if you have a model that maybe thinks a uh, wall is not a wall there and keeps driving. Right. Even though human drivers do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah, there's some interesting ethical decisions we're going to have to make about how much we allow mistakes to be made by AI and who holds exactly. life. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't yep. mean it's a more difficult problem than the AI itself. So in general, is it safe to assume that the training of a model is something mm -hmm. that can be done, quote, unquote, offline, yeah. in batch, at human speed, using close to infinite resources, and then right. I package that up in a trained model, which mm -hmm. I presume is a lot smaller, and you said maybe you can run on an edge GPU that's in a camera. Right. I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of order of magnitude. So is the training system, let's say for cameras, is it like one, two, three, ten orders of magnitude bigger than the model? What's the relationship between... I know this is a very general question. Yeah, this is... This is, is I, it, but is, I it think like, it, is it like to do something like visual identification? I mean, I right. imagine the training corpus might be absolutely massive. Essentially, if you talk to a data scientist, they're going to say, the more data I have, the better. Okay. All right. And if you, the if more you good data I have is the better. More good, exactly, exactly. So if you take like facial recognition, for instance, right? Yeah. It's come a long way since I've worked on it, of course, but... You know, when I did it back then, it was, you needed 30,000 pieces of data, right? Of images, facial images to even get it to a point where you're looking at like a 30% accuracy. But obviously, really? you know, that was way before. I mean, that was years before. As GPUs have evolved, right? Technology has evolved. The models themselves, most of the models that you work on now are open source models that you're refining, right? So I would like to think that the scalability is not that drastic anymore, but I still think core is going to be at least two to five X more than what you're okay. going to be doing at the edge. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, maybe order some magnitude more. But exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it makes sense, right? Because at the core, that's when you are not necessarily looking at making an efficient model yet. It's not a productionized model, which is what you're going to push to an edge. Right. right? You're just trying to make sure the output is correct. Right. Well, <laughs> and as you sure. pointed out, I may not even know what I'm looking for yet. Meaning exactly. I may have this vibration data from 10,000 wind turbines over the last two years. And yeah. who knows if there's any patterns that I can detect that would yep. predict maintenance, right? So I've got to go through it and look for correlations and anomalies and try to build a model and test it. And yeah, I mean, that could be just a massive amount of data that I don't know which is useful or not until well, I've gone you through it. Well, and you also may identify, the core is actually where you identify, is there data I'm missing? Like, has, is there something I haven't even collected, mm. right? You may have hundred petabytes of data, you know, let's say this, you may have a hundred petabytes of data for wind analysis and all these sensors on wind turbine, but you may come in there and say, man, I'm missing weather data. Right. Or just the angle of the camera. Or yeah. Or that. Yeah. How, exactly. high, how high is the camera off the ground and what's its angle? Right. Cause I can now. And here's the, here's the number one thing with edge devices, right? They're at the edge. So you're not going to get as consistent pattern of data that is reliable all the time. You may have issues with connectivity. You may have issues with the edge device itself. Right. Devices are they're not a hundred percent fault proof. You may miss some gaps in your collection of data. There's a lot of things that can go wrong when you're collecting data. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to make use of the data. It doesn't mean yeah. that the data is not valuable. It just means that it's kind of like a puzzle. You need to take bits and pieces of different groups of data and, and make sense of it together. Okay. And this isn't really about the edge, but I'm since I have an expert, I'm gonna ask <laughs> you to disambiguate this for me. So lots of ways of storing data. The three phrases I hear all the time data warehouse, data lake, 
data lake house. Yep. I think those are all silly terms because I don't know what they mean. I'm being facetious because I actually do know what they mean. But I think <laughs> it is it is sort of a you know terms of art that like you know only certain people. It's like code. So sure. how should I think about these models of storing and accessing data, and how should I relate that to the edge? I think that's the question I'm trying to ask for my audience. Yeah. So when you think about data warehouse, data lakes, and data lake houses, right? What's the difference? I, the main difference is, is it's the evolution of a data lake house. It's the latest term. Okay, so, so these are on a sequence. Right, exactly. It's evolved into a combination of a data warehouse and a data lake, which is what we call a data lake house. Okay. And the data lake house itself is interesting because think about all the off takers of data. You're not just talking about from a business standpoint. Not just what, is an, what is an off taker? A consumer? Off taker would be users, right? In, okay, individuals data, that right. will consume that data. The data scientists. That, yeah, okay, got right, it. data scientists. You'll have compliance individuals that'll be making sure that you know the data is refined and security. So a data lake house is I like to think of it as like the best of both worlds. You have an environment that you can collect and centralize enormous amounts of data that may be collected in multiple different data silos, but you're refining and getting it to a point where you can put it into a data lake house, which is consumable by say a data scientist. You're giving them access to the data they need without giving them access to kind of the ocean itself. That's important, right? It's important because a data scientist is not in the business of cleaning your data. They're actually not even in the business of identifying the data they need. They're in the business of producing models and taking data that's already refined and ready to use and making sense of it by saying, okay, if I'm using a facial recognition model, here's the data set that I've already been given. Here's a subset of that data. I don't have to worry about refining it and getting it to a point that's consumable. I'm going to take it and make my model. I don't think any data scientist I know has ever said that. What they complain about is how much time they have to spend. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where a strong data lakehouse foundation kind of eliminates that excess time that a data scientist has to... Let's dig into that a little bit. Okay. Right. So a data lakehouse, it's a place that I can just store lots of different data. Right. So what does that mean? Let's imagine that I've got factories. Let's shift to factories. And in factories, mm -hmm. I've got all the machines that are hooked up to it and they have status data that comes out of it. I've got cameras there that I've got aimed at the production line that I can maybe do some right. AI on. I've got a bunch of the data that I'm collecting. And you're saying that these may locally be collected in their own like specialized systems. Right. And then in order to make it more accessible, so I don't have to force my data scientists to go all these different systems, I want to store it somewhere centrally, as you mentioned. Right. You know, right. and whether that's literally in the center of the state, but it's a place where right. all these things. What is inside a data lake house? I mean, it's a bunch of hard drives. And is there a schema? Well, it's different than just storing in a giant S3 bucket. How is that not a data lake house? Well, when I think of a data lake house, it's consistent of not just storage, of course. Okay. Right? S3 is just storage. But it also makes use of a compute layer on top of that, right? where you have your more advanced you know, GPUs that are located on top of that. And then on top of that, you also have your... MLOps layer, there is software on that's defined on top of the hardware that will allow you to not. Uh, I see. So, so a data lake house is both the modern technology to retrieve right. and analyze data as well as the data itself in one box. Exactly. Right. Okay. Well, and it's interesting, right? A lot of individuals say, well, hey, I have data that's going to be siloed still. I can't yeah. bring it to a data lake house, yeah. right? Yeah. Why? There could be security issues, compliance issues, you know, financial data, for instance, you may not want to combine that with your like, your right. Sensor. Or like I've heard with the public safety thing, sometimes right. they can't leave the jurisdiction. Exactly. Like video right. can't leave the like jurisdiction. That. Yeah. That's where you got to be a little creative, right? Now think about from a, a cost perspective, right? When you have multiple different data silos, that means you have multiple different budgets that are involved in maintaining those different data silos. 
You have to secure all of those different data silos. You have to make sure that it's accessible, it's consumable, all those different things that you have to do with the data lakehouse. But now you're multiplying it by the amount of data silos that you have. Now, when you try to make a more efficient environment, yeah, you can consolidate maybe three out of the five different data buckets that you have. A, you're eliminating the need to maintain five different buckets. I want to say you reduce your O&M costs because you're able to manage three buckets now instead of five. But now you'll say, well, Jay, I still have this data that I can't bring into this environment. That's okay. There's always going to be data that you say, look, it just doesn't make sense to bring into a data lake house. We can't do it. There's issues, security issues, regulations, so on and so forth. But we still want to make use of that data. And that's when, you know, these new technologies have come out. Data virtualization, for instance, right? Can you access this data to be able to make sense of it? Right, right. It's almost like what's more important is the metaphor of the data lake house. Yeah. than yeah. actually the physical centralized. Yeah, if, exactly. if, you can, if you can virtualize a silo and make it look like it's coming from the data lake house, it's, right. it's essentially the same thing. That's super interesting, super interesting. Let's shift to the future. Let's look forward a little. What's most exciting to you about what's happening at the edge? I think what's most exciting to me at what's happening at the edge is the quality of life that's going to improve. So what I mean by that is, think about all the edge devices. A lot of times individuals, when they think about edge, I know we talk about cameras here. That's like, probably one of the most common things that individuals think about when they're like, oh, edge, camera, phone, so on and so forth, right? Because they interact with them daily. But really what I'm talking about is, you know, think about how edge can be applied in like agriculture, for instance, right? In farming, yeah. right? I just you, interviewed a guy who runs an indoor greenhouse-based yeah. autonomous farm, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's fascinating, right? You, yeah. Can you produce a product that is more nutritious and picked at the right time to get the optimal output out of it? I think it's critically important because technology itself can be used for good, but it can use, be used for bad as well. And this is where I'm extremely excited to say, okay, the good part of technology is, can I make my quality of life better? Can I make my health better? Can we live longer? Can we figure out a way that we can solve certain illnesses in individuals? Right. Those are all really common things that excite me, essentially, what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. I get that. There's already improvements in yeah. your life based on, yeah. you know, things that are... Oh, you've been driving, right? Like, my parents are getting to an age where I'm getting concerned about them, you know, them driving essentially a death machine on wheels. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and even if they're not fully autonomous, they're making right. cars now that are a lot harder to crash into something or leave exactly. a lane, right? Exactly. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I imagine it'll be an acceleration, right? Like, we're just yeah. on the verge of this. Right. Now. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are there things that you would you would want to accelerate. Meaning, let me ask this a different way. You can see this imagined future and you can see where we all are today. And if you could say, gosh, if just this group of people do these things and this thing and this thing, like, you know, if you can imagine the dominoes falling, like which ones would you nudge if you could? Like what would help accelerate this world? This is a very personal question when it comes to this. So I'll say this is my, 100% my opinion, right? Okay. I would nudge healthcare, the healthcare industry and the energy industry, right? Okay. The two largest old school industries in the world that have the most amount of data that's been stored for years and years and years. I feel like we haven't gotten to a point where we've identified a way to go completely clean energy, for instance, right? For the environment. That has tremendous impact to the healthcare industry, has tremendous impact to just the quality of life, for instance. And then healthcare itself, there's a number of different parts in healthcare that I think can be accelerated, but even something as like the smart hospital, right? We went through COVID recently and in that COVID outbreak, it really helped us understand how far behind our hospital systems are. We can't monitor our patients' health sometimes in hospitals that aren't connected because there's not technology implemented that's correctly implemented there since, you know, maybe 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And that has been impacting everyone's life, right? COVID was something that impacted everybody. 
And I think it is. I think that's exactly where there's been a lot of focus recently is see how far we can bring the energy industry and nudge that industry as a whole and also figure out a way to nudge our healthcare industry to become more efficient. You know what I love about that that answer? Because usually when I ask a question like that, the answer I get is, uh, well, I, you know, I'd accelerate the deregulation. Or, But what's interesting about your question is you're starting from the demand side, yeah. which I think makes a lot of sense because that is how you tend to get things to happen more quickly. It's funny that you're not the only individuals asking this question. And I get very similar answers when it comes to, like, like you said, deregulation or it comes to very politicalized answers, right? Yeah. My life motto has been, how can I do what I know and help humanity as a whole? It doesn't matter where you fall politically or what you believe in. It's how can I make sure that whatever I do, whatever I output in this world can have a positive effect in everyone's life, whether it's an easier access to healthcare, whether it's, you know, a better quality of life through a more efficient energy production. It's not so much about what's specifically affecting me right here, right now. It's what's in my environment and how can I make an impact in my environment? Where do you stand on this this very current debate of how worried we should be about AI, right? I mean, clearly it's interesting and fun and it's making better products. And like, and I just going to stick my head in the sand because like I'm yeah. using it and it's great. And like, I don't see any danger, but a lot of smart people that know more about this than me. So where do you stand on that spectrum? I think ethics is a very interesting topic when it comes to AI. <laughs> and I say that because I have started my career in our intelligence community where right. my goal is to protect my loved ones in the country, right? Yeah, and, 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 and maybe AI. push up against ethical boundaries in order to do it. Right, exactly. And I will say that technology and AI can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Just like the internet, actually. Internet is the same concept. When the internet came out, people had the same questions, Right. AI is in the same boat, I think. I think AI is something that if you choose to use it for good, then it will be good. But if you choose to deliberately use it for bad, then it will be bad. I think that goes for anything, right? Whether you use a car or whether you use, you know, you know whatever in your current environment, it's an active choice of you as an individual and how you choose to use it. Isn't there some of this debate, though, that, look, AI, one of the things that's interesting about it is it's kind of non-deterministic. Like, we know how these large language models, quote unquote, work because we wrote them, but we yeah. don't know actually what they're going to produce. Right. Right? It's like, we don't know what they're going to do. And sometimes they're going to do things that look evil, even though you didn't intend that. So it's like, you know, unlike typical applications we build, which are right. fairly deterministic, this is a different world. We're relying on, you know... It inferred correctly 20 times. Yeah. yeah. So I've heard that too, right? I've gotten the same question about the large language. Yeah, and I don't know the answer. I'm done. And-, and so here's my thought process, right? Yeah. Say I owned a autonomous car, right? It has yeah. Similar to like Tesla or whatever. Mm-hmm. It comes with these features that say, okay, well, there's auto drive involved in it and it will automatically drive for you. Me as an individual, I get to determine how much trust I choose to put into that technology. When I get behind the wheel and I say, I want to turn on auto drive, do I completely put my feet up, take a nap, read a book and say, hey, this everything's going to be okay? That's my personal choice. I choose to trust that technology, right? Same thing with, goes with the large language model. It's a tool in our tool bag as humans. I guess a, a nail gun could go crazy too. Exactly, <laughs> right? People cut their arms off with chainsaws all the time. Right. And I think a lot of that's educating our environment, educating our kids, educating our, our youth to understand, hey, this is very useful in gaining knowledge, right? right? But it doesn't mean that it's 
hundred percent accurate. I wish like, someone younger in my life, when I was younger in my life, had taught me the law of unintended consequences. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. I would, I would have. I would have gotten gotten farther ahead faster if someone had. Let me explain to something. As much as you think about this. <laughs> yep. And I mean, I'll be honest. I have two young nieces, and they're growing up in a world that is going to be completely different than what my sister and yeah. I grew up in. And that's one of the things I worry about. Is not so much are they going to interact with the technology. It's more of are they going to understand the limitations of the technology? Are they going to understand how to make use of it, where to make use of it, and when to say, uh-uh, this isn't right. I'm not listening to this. I think that line has been kind of fuzzed out a little bit as technology has evolved, right? I mean, think about the amount of kids with cell phones. I didn't get a cell phone until I was in college. And even then, it was like when we had to pay for minutes, my parents were like, hey, you got to No, and their behaviors are different. I have two young boys, and when I call them <laughs> on their cell phone, which I rarely do because I never use the phone app, but when I have to call them, because like right. their Alexa's not working and they need to come to dinner, yeah. they don't say hello. That's yeah. just what that age group does. Because they're like, on, yeah. it's like, my phone is just like Discord. I don't say hello. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, what? And you know, it's crazy is coming from the intelligence side, it's so critical to teach our youth the boundaries of technology, right? There is an mm. ethical commitment that I think that society has a whole to educate individuals about the technology itself. It doesn't mean that we should limit the technology. It means we should get educated in the technology and understand how to properly use it. Yeah. And I think that's really where I stand. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been super interesting. Really enjoyed this panoptic conversation and (laughs) we'll hope to see you more at the edge. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.